Once again, is from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot. We started our series in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and uh, it's a historical document uh, that summarizes the major beliefs of our faith. We've looked into why God gave us the Bible. We also looked into what it means for the Bible to be inspired, and today we're going to consider the God of this Bible. And there's too much to cover in one sermon, so I'm just going to focus on one aspect of God, and it includes both his otherness and his closeness. When you look at Psalm 139, you are given a picture of God who knows everything. We call that omniscience, right? And what's really interesting, and we see the wisdom of God in this, is that there's a literary device that the psalmist use, that, that he uses in this psalm. It's called parallelism. And parallelism is when, in Hebrew poetry, the psalmist says one thing, and he says another thing right after that, but they're paired together in that they, they either uh, complement each other or they kind of repeat what each other, what they say. Now, this is really boring, I know, right? Um, but I want to tell you that God is really wise in that he even thought about the language that he chose. He even thought about the poetic technique that's in that language to clearly communicate an amazing uh, uh, fact about himself when it comes to his omniscience in this passage. He actually uses the language itself. You know, if you ever wonder why, why did God use Hebrew of all languages he could have, used, he could have chosen? Why Hebrew, right? There are many answers you could probably give to that. But one of the things that I was amazed with in this week as, as I was looking into this passage was that um, the parallelism that's inside Hebrew poetry, it's, it somehow clearly communicates both the otherness of God, of this all-knowing God, and the closeness. And that's really cool if you think about how sometimes we try to focus one, only on one over the other. Sometimes we focus on how great God is, right? On how different he is from us, how he is not like us. And other times we focus on how he is kind of like us, right? How we can relate to him, right? But you know what the Bible does? The Bible doesn't emphasize one over the other. It presents both. Right? For example, an example of parallelism is in Psalm 1, verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, that's the first statement, 
but the way of the wicked will perish. Do you see the comparison there? The way is repeated. Righteous and wicked is contrasted, right? The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's called parallelism, right? It's one example. There are many types, right? But that's one example. And the reason why I'm going through that is because all six verses in today's passage follow that mold. And what I really want you guys to do today is actually look at your Bibles and follow with me verse by verse, because I think it will be really beneficial for you in looking at what God's Word is saying to us today, right? So in Psalm 139, we're going to start with verse 1. And in verse 1, you see both the otherness and the closeness of God. In verse 1, it says, you have searched me. You know that word? Search, it's a legal term. It means to cross-examine, right? To verbally test and examine someone, study someone, so that you basically have a thorough working knowledge of that person. But right after that, you have searched me, he says, and known me. And that part actually communicates a very personal and relational knowledge when it's being used there, right? And this verse introduces all the ideas that are to come. So when you look in verse 2, it says, uh, when I sit down, right? You know when I sit down and when I rise up. That's the otherness of God, meaning everything that happens in your life, when you sit down, when you rise up, these are normal day-to-day activities that we all do. Some of us sit down a lot more, eight hours throughout the day, (laughs) hopefully not straight, right? Uh, and we need to stand up more, right? But when it says, when I, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, it's talking about how God has so cross-examined us, so to speak, that he knows everything that happens in, in our lives. It's like a reality TV show. It's like if there was a camera on your life and someone was able to witness everything that you did every day of your life for years and years, Right? No one can do that. No one has that kind of knowledge except for God. It shows how God, his knowledge, he doesn't even need to go through a process to try to discover this kind of knowledge. He already has it just by being himself. He is so far different from who we are. Right? We should never diminish that. Right? Sometimes we, we lack a fear of God because we forget what kind of a person he is, that he's someone that is completely different from us. Now, in that same verse where it says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, he's this God who has this omniscient knowledge of everything that goes on in our lives. It also says, you discern my thoughts from afar. This word, discern, It actually means God understands, discern my thoughts. It means God understands my intentions, my purposes, and my longings. You can't get that from a camera. You could try to figure it out, right? Why he's doing, you know, you ever look at a YouTube video and you try to figure out why the guy's doing what he's doing? You try to piece it together, try to get the clues. But when it says, you discern my thought, It means God understands your intentions, your purposes, your longings as people. And you can't do that unless you know them, unless you spend time with them. 
right, for us. But God, he knows this because he's God, but he's also so close to us that he discerns every intention. He gets us, right? And it says from afar. Now, typically the way I understood this was God gets me. He gets who I am, right, as a person. Not just, he's not like a camera just looking at me. But he really understands me. He understands my weaknesses, my strengths. He understands my, my, my pride and the times that, you know, I actually, by God's grace, want to submit to his will, right? He understands everything that I go through. But it says, from afar. Do you know what that means? It does mean that God is so far away from us, right? That he is so far above us, right? He's sovereign, right? He, 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 he's not like us in that way. He's God and not man. But you know, I, I, I dug through some verses. It, it means something more, and when I found that out, it broke me. When it says, God discerns my thought, you discern my thought from afar, let me give you some examples of how this is used. In Psalm 10, verse 1, the psalmist says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Right? That's how afar is being used. In Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? This is the first part of that verse. You know Jesus Christ he quoted that as he was dying on the cross, right? The context is, why did, why did God distance himself from Jesus? Let me give you one last one. Proverbs 15, verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Do you know, do you know what it means when it says that when the psalmist addresses God directly, and he says, you discern my thoughts from afar. It means that he gets us even when there is sin in our life. And God seems so distant. He still gets us. You see, when, when, there's, when there's contention in human interpersonal relationship, typically you don't want to understand the person that you have conflict with. You don't, you don't want to spend the time. You don't want to give the emotional energy to understand them, to get them, to get why they're doing what they're doing. But you see, here God, he, he still understands us from afar. Even when there is that sin that is contaminating the fellowship that you have with God, he still understands you. He still knows why you're doing what you're doing. And he understands the longings of your heart. Do you know where this really brings it close to the Christian? You have, when you go to the New Testament, you see that even Paul confessed that he didn't understand why he did what he did. And some of you already know that passage. If you look in Romans 7, Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
He goes on to say, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see, even when we can't even understand us, even when we can't even get why we do what we do, we have a God who is completely perfect, who is untouchable when it comes to corruption and sin. And he gets us. He understands why we continue to sin against God. Um, when you look in verse 3, it says, You search out my path and my lying down. That word for search actually literally means measure. Meaning he knows in detail and he has calculated and he has uh, he knows the exactness. He has meticulous knowledge of where you travel and where you rest. There are a lot of people in Atlanta who never grew up in Atlanta, right? I'm one of them. Um, we come from different places. We've traveled, right? Physically and both metaphorically, right? Kind of on, on our own journeys, right? Um, God knows he has measured it all. He knows every detail of what you went through. He knows the exactness of how you felt, of the experiences that you were put under, right? He knows it all. He even knows how you rest, where you've stopped to recuperate. See, that's the otherness of God. He can do that. But at the same time, when you look in that same verse, it says, and are acquainted with all my ways. So he searches out my path and my lying down, and he's acquainted with all my ways. He's familiar with you. He, he's accustomed to the way that you live your life. He gets you the mannerisms, the customs, and the behaviors that have been cultivated in your life. Right? And when you look in verse 4, the psalmist even goes on to say, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. How, how does any human being know exactly what you're about to say before you say it? Now, sometimes we finish our, each other's sentences. This goes way beyond something like that, right? Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. Um, there's a specific film that came out in 1997, and there are these guys in a scene, and one guy, he's trying to demean the friend of the protagonist. Right? He's trying to demean him intellectually. The friend, he's no way, he's by no means an intellectual. Right? So he, he can't defend himself in that conversation. Right? Um, the protagonist, in the middle of that conversation, when one guy is trying to demean the protagonist's friend, he step, the protagonist steps in and basically knows everything that the guy is trying to say because 
the protagonist has read the same books that the guy who's trying to demean the other person has read. And before even the guy finishes what he's saying, right, he already knows. Now, I know some of you are like, what movie is this? <laughs> right? I'll tell you after the sermon, right? But that's an example of where someone, he's able to even know exactly what that person's about to say because he's read the same books, he's gone through the same rationale, he's, he's beyond that, and he couldn't even say it before the other guy is, is trying to finish what he's saying. God, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And it says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. When it says you hem me in, it means actually, it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a violent word. It means to besiege, right? It means to surround in a military context. And God is using it here to say, I have surrounded you, right? And of course, not only in a way where he's God, he's omniscient, so he knows everything, but also in a loving way, in a personal, relational way. Uh, there's an there's a event that happened in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6, where uh, Elisha, servant of the Lord, is actually surrounded by the, by the Syrian army, right? Because Elisha is helping Israel win against the war against the Syrians. And so the Syrians have the great idea of trying to capture Elisha so that he stops thwarting their plans, right? And Elisha has a servant, and the servant goes out and he sees that the Syrian army is surrounding them, right? And he says, what are we going to do, right? And Elisha says, don't worry, because you don't see that there's, there's an army there's God's army surrounding the Syrian army. And so Elisha prays for his servant so that he can see God opens his eyes and the servant sees God's army surrounding the Syrian army. I think that's what's in mind here when he says, you hem me in, right? Behind and before and lay your hand upon me. God, he protects you. He knows you, right? He's there for you, right? And then the psalmist, he ends with the statement, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. Now, when you say it's too wonderful, I don't know about you, but my mind generally goes to the idea of something amazing that I am witnessing with my eyes, right? That something is wonderful in that fashion. But when the psalmist is saying this, according to one Old Testament scholar, it's not the abnormalness of what is happening that the word refers to, but it's actually referring to the clear impression of God's care for someone. So when the psalmist says, this is kind of weird, but kind of follow what I'm trying to show you, such knowledge is too wonderful for me the psalmist is saying, it's not only the fact that you are an amazingly powerful God who can do anything and you just wow me when I see what you're doing. He's saying, your care for me, your love for me is too wonderful. You see, he's broken. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just an intellectual witnessing of what's going on. It's, it's gotten to his heart. 
and his heart has been broken by the, by the immensity of God's love and care for him. Even though that same God who has this kind of care, this wonderful care for him, he knows everything about this psalmist. He knows his sins. He knows his weaknesses. He knows what he's been through. He knows how he rests. He knows where he, tra- he, knows where he traveled. And yet that same God is so committed and devoted in love for this sinner that the psalmist, after contemplating the kind of God that he is, both the otherness of God and the closeness of God, he says, the kind of God that you are, that kind of knowledge that I'm trying to process right now, it's too wonderful. It's breaking my heart. He literally says it is inaccessible. And what's interesting is in the English, it says, it is high, I cannot attain it. If you look in the Hebrew, it actually says, I cannot get to it. It is too high. I cannot get there. There's a directional implication there. I cannot get to it. It's too high. And he's absolutely right. Because if we try to figure out God and try to make ourselves right before God, there is no way you could get there. And that's why God, in all of his wonderfulness, he sent the wonderful counselor. He sent Christ to come down so that we can have access. Not because we've tried to, apart from God and his grace, try to reach God, try to access him, but because we depend on the one who made himself accessible to us, who took on flesh, who went through what human beings go through because of his great love for us. And I want to leave you with this. When you think about the otherness, and that's, that's just one brief description of one characteristic of God. And as you think about that, your understanding, a high view of God, is not some detached intellectual exercise. For the psalmist, having a high view of God actually caused his heart to worship. And the higher your view of God, the greater your view of God, the smaller you become in your own eyes, but the greater your worship becomes for him. If you're wondering why you're going through a dry season in your life in terms of worship and in terms, I'm not just talking about this place, I mean your whole life, right? Right? It's not anything that you can create for yourself to try to make you and God get closer. It's not some miracle that you should be looking for, some, some fantastic experience, right? It's knowing God, getting to know who he is, how great he is, how he's nothing like you, how he will never be anything like us, but at the same time, how Jesus Christ chose to incarnate himself 
in the likeness of men because of his great and wonderful love for us. You know, when that knowledge just hits you, you know, you can only come to a place where you buckle and you worship the sovereign king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together together, for bringing us together today. And I pray, God, that as we consider the otherness of who you are, that in one sense you are nothing like us, and the closeness of who you are, how you understand us, even when we don't even understand ourselves, how you get us, even when we don't even know why we do what we do, even though we don't know why we say what we say. Father, help us to trust you and enrich our life of worship through a greater knowledge of you, God, both in our mind and in our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.